Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey there, I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is the extended version of my conversation about hoarding disorder with Dr. David Tolan. He was on the most recent episode of Audacious, where we talked about this condition and its nuances. Like, what's the difference between someone who has a lot of clutter, someone who collects a lot of specific stuff, and someone who hoards? Dr. Tolan is the founder and director of the Anxiety Disorders Center and the Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy at the Institute of Living here in Hartford, Connecticut. He was also the original psychologist on the A&E series, Hoarders. We got started talking about what hoarding disorder is and what it's not. First, I think we need to recognize that hoarding disorder is a real psychiatric illness. I mean, this is something that you know, a a certain segment of the population experiences where their behavior has really gotten out of control. And this is not the same thing as just being messy. Lots of people are messy. I mean, you're, we're on video, you can see my desk is a mess. But the distinction largely comes down to function. So my desk is a mess, yes. But as you can also see, I'm able to sit here at the desk and I'm able to talk to you and I'm able to use my phone and use my computer and I can write a memo and I can do desk stuff at the desk, but if you imagine that we just cranked up the clutter on the desk, eventually we would reach a point where the desk really wasn't a desk anymore. I mean, it was a desk in name only. A dyno. (laughs) It's a dyno, yeah. But ultimately what it's become is a storage space. And in hoarding disorder, that's what you see in large swaths of the home. The kitchen is no longer really a kitchen, and the bedroom is no longer really a bedroom, et cetera. These have just become converted into de facto storage spaces. So so when we talk about what is hoarding disorder, I think that there's a number of things that we need to key in on. One is is the clutter, and that's important, you know, and, and we're talking not just messy, but we're talking breakdown in functioning because of the degree of clutter. But the other really critical characteristic of hoarding disorder is that the person with hoarding disorder really has a hard time letting go of things. You know, so the idea of spring cleaning, which might sound great to me and you, sounds just like torture to a person with hoarding disorder. The idea of having to make decisions and to throw things out is is painful to them. And so they avoid doing it. And then the clutter just builds up more and more. Are there different stages uh, of hoarding that that you and your profession use to sort of keep track of where they're at? Yeah, not necessarily stages, but certainly levels of severity. And this is the sort of condition, like most psychiatric disorders, that can range from mild, which is, you know, a little bit of functional impairment, but not too bad, all the way up to very severe, which is what you're more likely to see on television, where the person's functioning has completely collapsed and they're really entrenched in their behaviors. And then there's everything in between. And and so not everybody with hoarding disorder necessarily looks like what you see on TV, but they may still have functional problems nevertheless because of their clutter and their inability to discard. From your experience working with people 
who are living with this condition, what, if any, are are like things that have happened to them mm-hmm. or in their lives that, and I'm, I know you've seen one hoarder, you've seen one hoarder, but are there any commonalities you see in terms of something that happened in their lives or is it not necessarily that one thing? You know, there's probably no smoking gun here. You know, sometimes hoarding can be a trauma response, but in most cases it's not. We looked to see whether material deprivation might predispose a person to hoarding, like does not having enough when you were a kid predispose people to hoarding? And it doesn't really seem to in any particularly strong way. But one thing that kind of jumps out is emotional deprivation that people, at least retrospectively, with hoarding disorder, report feeling emotionally deprived as children. Now, of course, you have to take that with a certain grain of salt. That's a retrospective report from somebody who's probably viewing their childhood through that particular filter, that lens. But nevertheless, it gives us some intriguing ideas about where we might go and and what kinds of things might predispose a person to develop hoarding disorder. When someone finally reaches a point where they they know this is dangerous to their health because of course there can be um, animals and cockroaches um, things that actually could physically hurt them they're also being hurt by maybe their um, commitment to being in the house and near these items and with these items and so their their social life their community may uh, falter and that has its own consequences as well so when somebody finally feels like maybe i want to do something about this what are some really helpful first steps for them? Inform yourself about hoarding disorder. Read up about what this condition is and why we think it might be happening. That that by itself doesn't make the hoarding disorder go away, but I often find that a, a well-informed client is the best client. I, I want somebody who really understands what we're talking about. The second is, you know, if it doesn't feel like this is something that you can easily address on your own, don't be shy about getting professional help. Um, There's a form of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, that we know is very helpful for people with hoarding disorder. It's not necessarily a cure-all. It doesn't necessarily make everything all better, but it certainly can reduce the severity of the problem and improve the person's quality of life. So, you know, if if it feels like this is beyond your capacity to manage, don't be shy about reaching out for help. What does recovery look like for someone who has been hoarding? Because I'd like to imagine it's like a relatively clean house. Nothing's in the way. All the bugs are gone. They feel at peace. They feel like they identify with the place where they live and it feels good to them. Is that pie in the sky? It's not entirely pie in the sky. Uh, You know, I think we certainly see a lot of people who experience great reactions, a great response to the treatment. There's a lot of people who really turn their lives around. And when you look at the data, what you see is that although the majority of people, the vast majority of people who receive CBT show a reliable decrease in the symptoms of hoarding disorder, only a minority of them achieve remission, which means meaning absence of hoarding disorder. So what that means then, if you put those two pieces of evidence together, is that the end state for most clients with hoarding disorder is going to be that you still have hoarding disorder at the end of this, but it's going to be a better managed condition that is less hazardous to you and less getting in the way of your life. 
For somebody who has hoarding disorder, does it affect everywhere they are? Like, is it typically the house and the car if they have one and the office if they have one? It can be. You know, everybody's a little different. And there are some people who, who engage in hoarding behavior only in certain circumstances and not everywhere. But I think especially, for example, as the house gets filled and the person starts looking for other places to store stuff, the car gets filled, the workplace gets filled. The yard? The yard, yeah. The yard definitely happens. And that usually only happens once the house is full. So if you're driving through a neighborhood and you see somebody with a lot of junk in their yard, you can only imagine what's going on inside the house. It's probably pretty full. You've worked with people with this disorder. Has there ever been an experience that's kind of blown your mind a little bit? Well, I mean, I've certainly seen some really tragic cases of hoarding disorder uh, where the person's, I've I've never had a client die, for example, in a house fire or by being crushed by belongings, but I've certainly seen a lot of people that worried me that that was going to happen. Um, I know there was one case where the, the clutter was so bad, it was stacked six feet high. And the only way to get from room to room was to climb on top of the stack of clutter and army crawl across it to get under the archway to the next room and then climb back down into the next room. You know, that that's an example of somebody who really worried me. Like, this is not somebody who's going to fare well unless we do something really dramatic to help her. Are there shared characteristics of the personalities that you would meet when you would interact with hoarders? I mean, to me, as somebody who doesn't know much as learning for this episode, I picture somebody who has a lot of emotion. I picture somebody who is kind of insecure in a way. Um, I picture somebody who has an, a sense of anxiety and attachment, of course, like a certain kind of vibe. Is there a certain kind of vibe? You know, I think there's a lot of differences here. Um, You know, there's like no one kind of personality necessarily that's predisposed to hoarding disorder. I mean, this just happens to lots of people. But some commonalities that we tend to see, one is a high level of what sometimes gets called neuroticism, which is like you're talking about those big emotions uh, and not feeling like you can control those emotions very well. Um, being intolerant of uncertainty or being highly sensitive to your emotions, you know, seems to be a piece of this. I I think impaired cognitive functioning is also a piece of this. Um, It's very hard to prove conclusively with data, but my sense of it is that lots of people with hoarding disorder also have problems that are kind of akin to what people with ADHD experience, which is a difficult time organizing their thoughts just as they have a difficult time organizing their stuff, a difficult time prioritizing, a difficult time staying on task. And those are the things that I tend to look at more than necessarily like a a personality type. You work with so many people with so many very different uh, challenges uh, psychologically and then some. And I'm projecting that if I were David Tolan, I would for some of them want to take them by the shoulders and lovingly shake them and say blank. Like what would that blank be to a horse? Yeah, I tried you could lovingly shake. Oh yeah. How'd that go? It turns out it doesn't work. No. <laughs> the, the problem that we run into with behavioral change and, and, and this, this actually comes a lot out of the work that people have done on changing people's substance use behaviors is that being really confrontational with them 
doesn't really seem to help. In fact, all it really seems to do is make them feel even more distressed. And when they feel even more distressed, they revert back to their old coping behaviors, which is acquiring and saving even more. And probably more in private because they feel shame. Yeah, right. And it just drives them away. Like, okay, good. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And this is true when I talk to families of people with hoarding disorder as well, is that you just, you can't argue your way through this. So you're just, you're never going to win. Right. The person who is hoarding isn't going to be like, oh, I should just clean up. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Thank you for your helpful suggestion. Precisely. So, so as therapists, one of the things that we really have to rely on are motivational enhancement strategies that are designed to help the client to build their awareness of what's going on, to build up their motivation to work on it or keep more working on it, and, and to, to help them kind of stay engaged with the plan. Um, and that usually means that we take a softer approach. Uh, we're not going to get in their face. We're not going to say, here's what's wrong with you. But what we are going to do is help the person to sort of think about their current behavior as it relates to the life that they really want. So, and this is sometimes an uncomfortable conversation to have with somebody. Where do you want life to be? And then let's look at your current behavior and determine, are you on track to live that kind of life or are you going in the wrong direction? And, and then, you know, the answer is usually I'm going in the wrong direction. And then that puts us in a better position to be able to ask, what might we do about that? What would you like to do about that? What's the next right thing you can do towards that? Yeah, so, so the, the motivation really has to come from within the client. Um, as a therapist, what I'm going to try to do is help the client to tap into that rather than just confront them. I feel like shame is probably a big element of this because it's not like they don't see what's going on. You know, how much of a challenge is getting past that shame in order to get better? It's huge. I mean, there is a real stigma against people with hoarding disorder. Um, I mean, there, there's a stigma against mental illness in general, but there's some literature that suggests that it's particularly strong against people with, with hoarding disorder. And that stigma comes from the community. It comes from professionals. It comes from family members. And it comes from the person with hoarding disorder themselves. Everybody has a tendency to get into thinking that this is some really bad personality characteristic that, you know, and... and and of course, that's not true. And a big piece of what we need to do early on in, in addressing hoarding disorder is trying to break down some of that stigma and shame. One of the ways that we do that here at the Institute of Living is we do group format. And, and not everybody is in love with being in a therapy group because it is so revealing. But we often find that's the linchpin to breaking down some of the, the secrecy and the shame and the stigma around hoarding disorders, being able to open up and talk with other people about your home and about your behavior, and then listening to them say, yeah, I'm kind of doing the same thing. And then you work together on trying to make your lives better. Yeah, I think there is this moral judgment about the condition of our homes uh, and our general living areas, right? Like, a neat home means your mind is organized and all is in the right place. And the more messy your house is, the more messy your mind is. So you better get it cleaned up. And there is this sort of air of superiority if you keep your place nice and neat, that therefore you are advanced and more worthy of whatever. It gets very easy to look at a cluttered home and to use pejorative labels like lazy or sloppy 
you know, and, and I'd say nothing is farther from the truth in people with hoarding disorder. I, I think we have a hard time recognizing hoarding disorder as a legitimate psychiatric illness in which the person's behavior has really gotten out of their control. Doesn't mean they can't get that control back, but we need to cut them a bit of slack and recognize that people with hoarding disorder didn't just wake up and say, this is how I want to live. They slid into a pattern of behavior that spiraled out of control, sometimes very quickly, to the extent that they're, they've become overwhelmed and they can't, they don't feel like they can do anything about it. So people with hoarding disorder really need our understanding and they need our help rather than our judgment. So how can we help if we know somebody who we kind of have the suspicion and we've been watching them and it's been getting progressively more concerning? What are the best ways to help them and what are ways people often screw that up? Well, the number one screw up way is argue about it, right? Because just, you know, you're never going to win an argument about hoarding. I mean, if you're the average person with hoarding disorder, you're middle aged or, or older and you've been doing this for decades. And if you've been doing it for decades, chances are you've also been arguing about it for decades because you argued with your parents about it, then you argued with your spouse about it, then you argued with your children about it, and so on. Well, if you have been doing anything for decades, a couple things are predictable. One is you're going to become a master of it. You're going to become so good at it that you become unbeatable. But the other is that that's going to become your knee-jerk go-to reaction. So if you have a loved one with hoarding disorder and you go all confrontational on them and you say, listen, I'm going to tell you what's what, understand that you are stepping on into a minefield that has been there for decades and the person is the master of this. So there's just no point, right? All you're going to do is further entrench the person and alienate them and, and potentially damage your relationship. What makes more sense is to be gentle and to say, I'm concerned. And here are the reasons that I'm concerned and not to layer it with judgment, not to use words like lazy or sloppy, but to be very descriptive and say, here's what I'm seeing. Here's why this worries me. You know, is it that I'm worried that there's a fire hazard or I worry you're going to fall over something or I worry that the, the air quality is no good for you? Here's what I think could be happening. And here are some resources that I think you might want to look into. And that might be a book about the topic. It might be uh, a reference to a clinic that specializes in this. Um, but, but really, you know, you have to, as a family member, be, be just as willing to listen as you are to speak. I mean, it, it recognize the person with hoarding disorder is going through a lot. This is hard on them, too, even if they don't show it. And it's going to be very difficult for them to talk about it. And if you come in like gangbusters, they're just going to retreat. And that'll be the last conversation you'll have about it. And one conversation might not be enough. Well, it probably won't be enough. <laughs> it usually won't, right? I mean, I mean, just think about any big behavioral change. I mean, you know, anything. I mean, whether you've ever tried to quit smoking or quit biting your nails or quit overeating or join a gym. I mean, you know, whatever it is that you might have tried to do, just think about, did awareness immediately lead to behavioral change? Probably not. Did the behavioral change happen overnight? Probably not. And even once you started making the behavioral change, did you stick with it or did you go back and forth? And probably if you're like me, went back and forth. And, and so we need to recognize that changing any behavior in your life is a big deal and it's hard and it takes time. And sometimes we get very impatient with people with hoarding disorder and we say, just clean it up now. But understand if you can't quit smoking just now, 
and you can't can't quit overeating just now, and you can't start going to a gym just now. You can't you can't necessarily declutter just now. You have to start this process, but understand it's going to take a while, and there's going to be ups and downs as you go. The worst possible thing you could probably do to a hoarder is hire a company to clean out their home space when they're out at the grocery store or something like that would be like a nightmare for them, right? That would be a nightmare. Not not to mention the fact that it's potentially illegal, right? That that's that's breaking and entering and it's it's burglary. But also we need to recognize that just cleaning out the house is not really solving the problem. Any more than if somebody had an alcohol problem and we went to their house and took their alcohol away, we haven't solved their drinking problem. You've slowed them down a little bit, but they're going to keep on with the behavior. And they're going to be mad at you. And they're going to be really, really mad at you, right? So we kind of need to recognize that, that hoarding is not just a house problem. It's a person problem. And it's not just an issue of cleaning out the house, but really the person needs to be able to change their thinking. They need to change their emotional reactions. And importantly, they need to change their behavior. You know, there was uh, some research done with... um case managers who had done those kinds of cleanouts, and they asked them to rate one year after the fact, how was the person doing in terms of their quality of life and the condition of their home one year after that cleanout? Number one answer was no change, that there was that nothing had improved. And while there were a few people who did appear to, to show sustained change, for everybody who, who had that, there was another person who actually got worse. That is, their hoarding behavior got worse after the cleanup. So it's not just ineffective, it's potentially counter-effective. When I picture someone who's hoarding, I picture them alone. Uh, do most cases that you see or have seen, are they just one person? Because I imagine that if if somebody hoarded and they had a spouse or a partner or a family member or whatever, that that person who didn't share that same feeling or condition would be out of there. And that that does happen a lot of the time. And we do see that people with hoarding disorder are much more likely to be single than are people with other psychiatric disorders. Now, it's a little confusing as to what causes what. Does hoarding drive people away? Possibly. But does the absence of people in your life lend itself to more hoarding behavior? You know, one of the things that we see when we at least when we ask retrospectively about the behavior, is that it seems to spike up when your kids leave the house, for example, you know, and that's less pressure on you to keep the the house tidy. Or if you get a divorce or your spouse passes away. Now, again, that could be emotional, um, you know, but it also could be very practical that that was the person who was containing this behavior and now they're not there anymore. And so that solitude could compound the problem regardless of what came first. Right. So the person with hoarding disorder then is by themselves, probably not bringing people over, feeling a lot of shame, feeling overwhelmed, not knowing what to do and becoming increasingly miserable. Do we know how the odds are for someone who's in extreme stages of hoarding? If, if they get help, does it usually work enough so that they can live a you know reasonably healthy life? Yeah, I mean, the, the really nice thing is that, that, you know, when we've looked at, at controlled research on this topic, that when people receive CBT, the vast majority of them get better. 
when we go and check on them a year later, most of them who were better at, at the end of treatment are still better a year later. So it suggests the behavior doesn't creep back. We've, we've taught the person a, a good way of coping and we've taught them a new way of being that helps them to not get into that. Now, again, let me go back to the same caveat that I mentioned before. Most people at the end of treatment still have hoarding disorder, but it's a better managed version of the hoarding disorder. What are some warning signs that someone may be going down that path into being a hoarder? Well, that's, of course, the $64,000 question because we don't know very much. Um, a couple of things that we see. Well, one is that in the majority of cases, this behavior seems to start in childhood or adolescence. That is, it's relatively rare for this behavior to just start in middle age or later. Um, so if you're looking for warning signs, you gotta look to young people. And so what are the, some of the warning signs? Well, one, unfortunately, is probably genetic, that having hoarding in your family is probably a red flag. Two, another one seems to be ADHD and or OCD symptoms, um, that as the, the child or adolescent is less able to organize their thoughts and less able to organize themselves, it seems like it becomes increasingly difficult for them to organize their clutter. The, the other ones are, you know, to look for excessive acquiring and saving behaviors. Now, this is tricky because kids collect a lot of stuff, and that's not necessarily a problem. Most of the time when they collect stuff, they put it in a little collection area and they're interested in it. Sometimes when they collect stuff, they just dump it on the floor and, you know, walk over it or something like that, and they're not interested in it anymore. And that might be more consistent with, with a budding hoarding disorder. And then, of course, there's that big one of not being able to let things go. You know, the, the inability to discard things is, you know, I, I think the, the critical feature. And this is not just sentimental things. It can be like, you know, plastic celery wrappers or uh, hair ties or tinfoil. Like, it can be all sorts of stuff. Yeah. But, of course, the person with hoarding disorder may still say that's sentimental. I mean, they, they may still put their they still attach meaning to those objects. Whether you and I might agree with that or not is a different issue. But the but what's one of the things that we see a lot in hoarding disorder is that the person has this kind of excessive emotional attachment to objects and they imbue these, these objects with sentimental value that most of us are kind of scratching our heads at. Like sentimental looking back, but also sentimental in terms of, I might be able to use this someday, like future oriented. Yeah, I might be able to use this or somebody might be able to use this or I might be able to fix this up or I might be able to sell this. And, you know, people with hoarding disorder are often very smart. They're very clever and they're good at coming up with plans. Um, they're often not very good at following through with those plans. And so what they do is they accumulate things with the best of intentions. But then there's no follow through and the stuff just ends up, you know, further cluttering their home. When you were talking about kids saving stuff, it flashed in my head that some people, I know there's a, there's a definition of hoarding, which is we're talking about objects and things in a home could turn into a fire hazard, et cetera. But it occurred to me that some people hoard money. Some people hoard love. We all have the capacity to hoard in some way. It's just for these folks, it's, it's physical items in their vicinity. 
Yeah, I think that you make, I think you make a really good point there, which is that that the behavior of collecting, the behavior of getting stuff together is probably pretty normative. And lots of us experience that. And it may or may not be a big deal. You know, so we don't necessarily say that accumulating things is inherently bad. It's not necessarily bad to accumulate things. It's not necessarily bad to accumulate money or love. It's only when your efforts to do so are causing your functioning to break down that we would label that as a clinical problem. One thing that occurred to me as I was having this conversation with you is I keep calling them hoarders, mm. which now that I think about the language I'm using, you know, I think like, I don't want to call someone an alcoholic because it's right. like they're, they're, they're more than that. What's a better uh, phrase to call these people who have this condition? I really appreciate you asking that question, Kyle, because I, I too tend to shy away from the word hoarder, even though I'm on a show of that title. Um, I didn't name it. But I, I, I think using person first language is important when you're talking about psychiatric illness, um, just because it's it's so stigmatizing. So instead of referring to somebody as a hoarder, I tend to refer to them as a person with hoarding disorder, which is just more clinically accurate. Thank you. Well, Dr. David Tolan, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Anytime. You can hear the whole show that he was a part of, including audio from a woman who struggles with clutter and organization. As she takes me on a tour of her house, she talks about her progress cleaning things out and her frustrations with all this stuff, too. Then you'll meet a woman who's been running a YouTube channel, A Hoarder's Heart, for over four years now. Turns out the positive feedback she gets from her audience helps her feel more empowered to cope with her hoarding disorder. To hear that episode, just toggle through whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to ctpublic.org audacious. There you'll also see a link to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and their helpline is 1-800-950-6264. Thanks to my wonderful production team, Jessica Severin Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. And thank you for listening.